This episode of Everything About Hydrogen is brought to you by Biotech. The future of hydrogen is here, and Biotech is leading the way by disrupting the established centralized hydrogen supply chain with a new highly efficient model of local production hubs. Biotech produces hydrogen close to demand and transports it via high-pressure, high-capacity storage trailers. Fewer truck trips translates to lower transportation costs, lower emissions, and safer roads. It's the first step in making hydrogen more affordable and accessible today. Visit Biotech.us to learn how Biotech makes hydrogen easy. From the Hydrogen Media offices in Washington, D.C., this is Everything About Hydrogen. I'm Andrew Leadham, General Counsel at Biotech, and joining me from a few blocks down the road here in Washington is Patrick Malloy, Manager in the Breakthrough Technologies Group at RMI, and Chris Jackson, CEO of Proteum, who's calling in from London. And for this special episode of EAH, Chris, Patrick, and I are shifting gears from our regular format and keeping things simple by trying to tackle some of the key geopolitical aspects of the hydrogen revolution. So stay tuned to see what we come up with. But before we get into it, We'd just like to remind everyone that if you have any questions for us here at Everything About Hydrogen, please shoot us an email at info at h2podcast.com or give us a shout on Twitter at at about hydrogen. All right, let's get this episode started. Okay, guys, so this is going to be a special episode and following on uh, Chris Jackson's uh, favorite topic for dialogue and monologue, as the case may be, uh, we're going to do a little concentration on the geopolitics of hydrogen this time around. So uh, given that it is Chris's uh, specialty and expertise, we are going to let him introduce the topic for today's episode. So Chris, over to you. Well, I think that was a bit of a strong introduction, Andrew, but... uh, Just trying to put a lot of pressure on you, Chris. (laughs) Sure. Well, look, for the benefit of our listeners, uh, as we've mentioned before, myself, Patrick, and Andrew are all um, graduates of uh, Sir Johns Hopkins, which is uh, specialised in international relations. So this is a slight homage to our all professors, I guess, in some ways. But um, more seriously, um, a few people might know that in uh, January of this year, IRENA released its uh, a report called the Geopolitics of the Energy Transformation, the Hydrogen Factor. Um, it was quite widely commented on as a piece, and there was a lot of quite interesting discourse around what uh, hydrogen could mean for global energy supply chains and potentially whether hydrogen as the new oil, which is how some people have looked at it, is really a phenomenon that the security world and the foreign policy world needs to grapple with and engage with. So it was quite an interesting paper, and I just thought given also the uh, recent activities in Europe and a lot of concerns now around the future of energy supply in Europe, um, pending also the pause of Nord Stream 2, the famous gas pipeline that's been mooted for several years between Germany and Russia, that it was kind of a good time to have a little bit of a discussion as a group and just see if we can unpack some of the claims, some of the conversation, and just see what we all uh, see what we all make of it. So I wanted to kind of start off and maybe throw one across to you, Patrick, if I might. One of the reasons people are talking about the geopolitics of hydrogen is because they're saying the ability to produce hydrogen at extremely low cost in some parts of the world is so compelling that actually countries that have that perfect balance of solar and wind resources can or should be thinking about that resource in the same way that people did when they first discovered oil and gas deposits. And when you talk to Alicia Eastman at Intercontinental Energy, that's actually kind of their thinking about the business, right? Originally, it was you had the global solar atlases, the global wind atlases, the GIS data, and that was what inspired them to go around the world and start 
trying to build these projects. So yeah, maybe take a step back, where in the world, Patrick, do you see based on the work you do with RMI as the most uh, cost competitive places to produce hydrogen? And can you kind of give maybe the audience a little bit of a sense of uh, what those governments are actually thinking about with regards to their own hydrogen strategies? That's a that's a doozy of a question to start, eh? Uh, how are we going to do this globally? Um, so, so I think the first the first point here is um, uh, linked to that as well. There's a, there's a, a presupposing that that we're only talking about um, green hydrogen, and there's an element to which the natural gas markets are going to shape where we produce and what we produce uh, quickest where, right? But but to your point. Um, you know, in, in these first uh, kind of tranche of projects and scaled projects that you're seeing around the world, they're very big. You're tending to see a combination of those solar and wind uh, resources uh, providing, you know, some level of asynchronous generation to improve utilization of electrolyzers, right? So those are your first points where where projects are kind of been built today. I think what we're really seeing, though, is, and, and you know, we released a report uh, November of last year, October, November of last year. This is going to get cost effective in a whole heap of places pretty quickly. And thinking about it as the uh, the, the next oil, you know, I, I, I wouldn't personally pick that route, but it's useful for people to understand that you've got a valuable energy commodity that's going to uh, potentially... Uh, form the basis for international trade of of energy going forward in in some way shape or form whether that is ammonia whether that is you know a, a pipeline infrastructure system whether we are going to look at kind of um, more regional markets or we're going to see a, like a, a global or or quasi globally traded market like we see with oil pricing today so so there is a lot up in the air but I think the consistent point and and you know I feel like Andrew Andrew can speak to this as well, is that the projection for hydrogen in terms of cost is only going one way. Uh, when you look across all, all directions, all technologies, all uh, pathways. And on that basis, it makes sense that India is looking at developing its own domestic industry. It makes sense that China is looking at its own internal resourcing and, and developing its own electrolyzer production uh, kind of resources as well. It makes sense that Saudi Arabia is developing a known project that's concentrated on basically shifting their export market from the ONG uh, pathway that they're you know wholly wholly engaged on now to one that is more diversified. What's going to be really interesting is to what degree domestic and localized production is going to change the shape of those markets and the degree to which export is going to become the driver or export import is going to become the driver of hydrogen markets in terms of pricing going forward. But I don't know. I'd like to get Andrew's thoughts on this a little bit. So, I mean, yeah, I guess in terms of the downward pressure across the sector on on pricing, I mean, I think that's obviously an encouraging thing and it's across all technologies. So I think you're right to, to point to that. I do think there's an interesting dynamic and, and maybe I just have too simple of a mind. Well, I certainly have too simple of a mind, but maybe too simple of a mind to really get my head around exactly how that market evolution looks in terms of geopolitics and the trade international trade aspect I, I think to your point patrick there's a lot of really interesting stuff and and potential relationships around hydrogen transport and trade on a regional basis and i'm not quite sure that the cost case makes as much sense if you're talking about 
trying to, if you're talking about production of low cost hydrogen, and let's assume it's electrolytic, given that that's kind of how we started this conversation based on renewable resources in, in a variety of areas in the world. I don't know. And, it, and that's a, an interesting question that maybe you guys can weigh in on what that pricing profile, I mean, you can maybe produce it quite cheaply um, in certain areas, but then getting it transported cost effectively to even regional off-takers, I think presents an additional upward pricing pressure that is not so easy to predict. But I don't know. I, I think maybe that's a question that I that I refer over to Chris, because I mean, you know, Chris, you were saying that there's some very interesting international trade agreements and regional trade agreements and projects that you think are particularly promising. So I wonder how you look at that and how that that countervailing transport cost affects your view of, of uh, downward pricing pressures in uh, in some regions. Well, if I may, um, I'd almost um, take a step back and go, one of the challenges we sometimes have when we work in the renewables space or the clean energy space is that what sounds big in the context of the renewables world is tiny in the context of the broader energy and oil and gas world. So just to give you some some numbers, if anyone goes onto the IRENA website and you go through their, their summary slide deck, uh, slide 26 has a nice summary of the largest green hydrogen projects as of 2021, right? And there's some quite big projects there. There's the Hydeal Ambition, which is 67 gigawatts of electrolysis in Western Europe, 30 gigawatts in Kazakhstan, and the list goes on. And so essentially of a list of 20 of the biggest green hydrogen projects in the world, you get to a total of 240 gigawatts of electrolysis, right? So big number in the renewable context, big, big number. But um, what I was doing was I was converting this back in my head to um, the numbers that Alicia Eastman gave us when she came on the show and spoke about how many Asian renewable energy hub projects you would need just to decarbonize shipping. And if you, you know, for listeners to go back to that episode, Alicia said you would need 65 projects of the size of their project in Australia, their Asian Renewable Energy Hub project. You need 65 of those to decarbonize the global shipping industry. Well, if you built all 20 of those projects in 2021, you, you know, which would be 240 gigawatts nearly of electrolysis, that only works out at roughly 17 of those 65 projects you'd need. So you'd only just decarbonize 26% of global shipping if you built every single one on that list, just to give you a sense of scale. Uh, and I think that is what I find quite interesting about sort of the geopolitics of this is it's like, uh, yes, price is going to be important for certain areas, but actually the sheer volume of energy we need is so large that it's actually not simply going to be a function of price. It's going to be a simply a function of, well, where actually could I conceivably extract that amount of energy with that amount of water to be able to produce the sheer quantity of fuels that we need to decarbonize? And actually thinking about that also gets me into the question of minerals, which we don't normally talk very much about. But, you know, again, it's quite interesting. If you look at platinum, which is obviously one of the most discussed um sort of critical earth for electrolyzers, specifically PEM, um, around 70% of the world's platinum is coming from South Africa. From the mining side, obviously, recycling, as the World Platinum Council will tell you, is a third of global supply total. But of new mined platinum, 75% is in South Africa. And when you actually get into the sort of the weirder and more wonderful rare earths, so um, just going again through a few fun names, is zirconium, cerium, yttrium, 
Uh, actually, today, essentially, all the global supply is really coming from China because it's one of the only countries in the world that actually mines those rare earths. So I, I guess that's an interesting geopolitics question, which is, you know, you need to build so many of these things to just start to make a dent in the sheer volume of global energy and fuel that you need that rare earths become super sensitive very quickly. And when you start looking at rare earths and the way that the guys on the battery side have with lithium ion, then actually you kind of wonder is the geopolitics of the energy transition, specifically in the context of hydrogen, really more a question of where are you going to get the minerals to build these things as opposed to who's going to produce the fuels and where are they going to go from? So just to just to reflect on the minerals piece, because you know, a, a lot of people raise this conversation around batteries, they raise it around a lot of other kind of technologies. And it's worth saying that, you know, supply constraints are, you know, while potentially for some things may be kind of important in the future, we may have some some challenges, but you know, and take the the prime example for batteries being cobalt. Cobalt has a very high recovery potential in terms of um, when you when you recycle it, you basically get all your cobalt back, right? Some of these resources just haven't been sought after in the way that they would have been in, you know, had we had this, you know, kind of uh, technology transformation, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. And rare earth metals, you know, particularly um, very heavily concentrated, as, as you rightly say, Chris, you know, in China, you know, th there are other places you can get it and it, it's co-mined with other things. So there's a, there's a whole heap of resources out there that aren't necessarily being exploited today because cost effectively it was easier or cheaper to get them from the dominant strands some of which are in china some of which are in you know in south africa right so it's it's really a case of and i, I think the bigger question around mineral availability is going to be around trade-offs and this i think comes back to your sector uh, sectoral analysis a little bit before it which is that market-wise what we decarbonize by sector first using hydrogen will have a huge impact on on volume uh, it will have a huge impact on the types of uh, cost point that can be absorbed in that transition or and or the the policy mechanisms to allow that to that transition to occur as well and therefore we're going to see different stresses on different you know supply chains mineral chains you know we heard graham cooley uh, in the last episode talking about you know, the development of, forgive me if I'm wrong, I think it was like three gigawatts of additional build-out capacity past the original uh, gigafactory in, in Sheffield, right? You know, we're talking about, you know, broadening the the availability of, of kind of minerals that we use, but also we're hitting different sectors. And by region, that price point that we can produce out in region will lead certain sectors to be more immediate or stronger candidates. And policy will also help shape that environment as well. To your point, if you're struggling and you can't domestically produce hydrogen at sufficient volumes to decarbonize your steel industry, export comes into play. If you're, if you're talking about, you know, like mineral availability, I have a funny feeling we're going to get a lot smarter on that a lot sooner. And there's an awful lot of effort going in today. You know, people trying to open lithium mining uh, generally around the world. Uh, folks looking at nickel, uh, you know, looking at all, whole heaps of additional things. And also uh, mining companies looking at uh, pre-mined tailings banks 
that might have under-extracted some minerals. So, you know, things where they would have co-mined resources and only wanted, you know, a specific mineral. So we've got a whole heap of potential resources and routes to trying to find the mineral supply chain. But I think the more critical piece will be around that um, production pathway, recovery, recycling, uh, and, and that sustainability, traceability pathway. Apologies to everybody on the rant on the on the mineral construction, but there we are. Yeah, I mean, Andrew, I guess the the, the question I was going to ask was, you know, representing an SMR company as opposed to a you know predominantly electrolysis focus where a lot of people come from, you know, actually the whole kind of mineral rare earth bit must be a little bit different. And I'm just wondering when you're talking to people in America, is actually kind of part of the reason why the Beartech solution is quite interesting over there is from an energy security perspective. People like the fact that it allows you to use more of your natural resources within the U.S. So if you're a state, you can use your natural gas or you can use your renewable natural gas and you don't need rare earths from China. Is that part of the appeal? Yeah, I mean, I think it is part of the appeal. It, it certainly the amount of rare earths or valuable metals that we have to use in, in for instance, biotech uh, reformers is is pretty minimal. Um, so that does have certain capex appeals, obviously appeal, obviously. But I, I, I do think you know in the United States. Look, if you even look at the the DOE hydrogen hub project uh, or program that they currently have an RFI up for, the structure of the the hubs is regional, right? And the idea behind at least the initial proposal is to actually utilize the regional resources and in, in the US. I mean, that does mean that there will be two out of at least four hubs that will seek to be designed, you know, will be designed around utilizing natural gas feedstocks or in areas that have predominantly or traditionally been natural gas and, and oil uh, energy states and regions, right? So there certainly is, I mean, in the US, I think in the US, it's, it's fair to say that there is a bit of an entrenched traditional energy sector. That's probably a pretty massive understatement, but I think that's, that is part of the appeal um, for blue hydrogen in the U S and also as you pointed out uh, RNG feedstocks are not as readily available or as uh, cheaply available, but it's another option. Um, and that can be done on a very distributed and, and localized level. Right. So there are a number of different options out there in the U S I mean, in, in all regions, but I think there are a number of different approaches that the uh, the U.S. government is trying to take, and that the market in the U.S. is is looking at. So that's probably not exactly what you were looking for, Chris. But did I did I touch on <laughs> what you were planning to to ask about? No, I think that's fair. I mean, you know, I think Patrick. I mean, surely that's got to be part of the appeal for countries in the Gulf has got to be looking at it, going, "We've got all of this embedded resource in all of these gas and oil reserves, and if there is a way we can utilize that existing resource base that we have, and the existing skills and jobs that we have, and we can extend that to align with the energy transition, there's got to be an appeal, right? I mean, you know, in my head, I think you hit the nail on the head, Andrew. That if you re- one of the big interests of looking at the the blue hydrogen space is quite geopolitical or geostrategic in some ways right it, it makes a load of geostrategic sense for existing oil producers and, and gas producers to look at blue hydrogen i think i think it's also worth bearing in mind there though as well that we come back to that export question right and whether you have local domestic production capacity 
that would then disrupt that export market in some way, shape or form. Now that applies both to the oil and gas pathways and to the hydrogen pathways. And I think that's why when you look at Saudi Arabia and, and the Nome project in particular, that's clearly a strategic decision to diversify the, the export base as well. I don't think anybody in, in, you know, major gas, oil and gas producing regions is going to shut down the shop entirely as, you know, tomorrow. But it's a question of are they preparing themselves for a disrupted export market and potentially a disrupted or different production um, kind of uh, pathway, especially if they're concerned about things like the carbon border adjustments, right? Which is, once again, a, a, a geostrategic, geopolitical kind of challenge as well, too. This episode of Everything About Hydrogen is brought to you by Biotech. Biogas, Biotech's gas-as-a-service option, provides customers with low-cost hydrogen on demand. Get dependable access to as much hydrogen as you require when you need it. Biotech produces the hydrogen locally and distributes it via high-pressure transport trailers. Avoiding long transportation distances saves money while minimizing emissions. You pay for the fuel by the kilogram, avoiding high infrastructure costs. Biotech makes hydrogen easy. Visit biotech.us today to get low-cost, low-carbon hydrogen delivered on demand. Yeah, I think I should probably take a step back and, and uh, point out that even though the, the hydrogen hub program in the U.S. under the DOE is looking to place those hubs in regionally, you know, based on regional resources, to that point, I should be clear, they are looking for each of those hubs, even if it's a you know, predominantly uh, oil and gas region that the hub is located in, they're requiring that those, each of those hubs have diversified production pathways as well as diversified offtake potential, right? I mean, that's probably not all that surprising, but it's not as though DOE is going to say, this hub is nuclear, you know, I forget, is nuclear, is nuclear hydrogen pink, guys? <laughs> What's that one on the rainbow? Uh, I've I, gone with yellow. Pink That's money. the one I've always gone with. Yeah. All right. Well, somewhere in there, you know, the, the, the point being, <laughs> regardless of the, of the <laughs> hydrogen rainbow, you know, the program isn't designed to solely utilize and, and stick with whatever the regional, you know, predominant regional uh, energy sources or resources are. It is meant to diversify that and in in, to incentivize investment in that diversification uh, of pathways for production, as well as for offtake. So that's really more of a side note. Uh, but yeah, I think that's worth noting is that it's not that even in the US that they're going to rely on the traditional energy energy sector resources, but there is still emphasis on utilizing what is available domestically and what is you know, sort of the entrenched and, and traditional sources uh, to the extent that that is still cost effective, right? So. Oh no, that was kind of a side no, note. Guys. But I think that makes <laughs> no. But I think that makes that makes a ton of sense, right? I mean, if you were to look at the bilateral deals on hydrogen, right? And again, there's a really nice Irina piece on this one. The main importers or uh, prospective importers is the term they use. You know, it is the sort of usual suspects of the most energy or fuel deficient nations that are largely industrialized. You know, so we're talking about Germany, we're talking about Japan, we're talking about you know Netherlands, Korea. These are markets that need to and have to import fuels to be able to operate, right? But actually, you know, it's it's interesting because you know countries are, especially in light of what's been happening in Ukraine, sitting back and going, "How do we secure energy security? How do we think about security of supply?" You know, that debate's very live in the UK. 
I think one of the reasons why people are excited about or interested in potential for hydrogen is to ask the question of, does that necessarily mean that we will see a replication of that model? Or is the fact that uh, hydrogen can be produced in so many more markets, especially especially electrolytic hydrogen, does that actually um, create a chance to shake up some of those paradigms? And, and probably is that a good or bad thing, I guess, would be the other one. Good or bad thing? Um, I don't know. I don't know that there's a there's a judgment call on this in that respect. I, what I would say is that whether we like it or not, there will be some level of disruption here. To, to Andrew's point earlier, you know, moving, transporting uh, fuels or, or or molecules of any in any form, it, it, there is a cost to it. So so you end up going back to that volumetric availability, right? Like, so what could you domestically produce? And then what would you necessarily maybe need to import from a large-scale producer? I think the reason you've seen everybody uh, who's more the more traditional producer is uh, kind of moving fast is, is, is down to the fact that these are the countries that are, and these are the, also the companies who are looking towards their future and seeing, seeing the next generation potentially of their, of their business. I think there's going to be a whole heap of people who are going to get involved in this. I think, you know, you've seen that with the likes of the Fortescue's getting involved, you know, a company traditionally a mining company getting into the business of production and development, right? So what does that mean? Um, it means that we're going to uh, have a very, very robust and highly competitive environment. The relative uh, level of competition is going to really be quite potentially regional, Um you know, obviously, if you look at Europe, there's a lot of folks in in Europe generally looking at Morocco and Spain and, and looking to develop that kind of hydrogen production corridor over that side. You know, I'd ask it on the other side of it, you know, what does that mean for gas producers on the eastern side of that kind of continent? Right. Um, Chris, in, in, in the UK, right. You know, do you continue to take advantage of the northern uh, kind of gas fields? the existing infrastructure, the existing positions, or do you look to leverage your offshore wind and to build that into a best-in-class, world-class kind of resource? There are both domestic concerns here that will drive some of these geopolitical kind of choices as well. Um, And it's going to be, I don't think we're going to get a simple answer here. I I think some of the large producers that, that are, you know, critical in our current energy infrastructure will be critical in the future. Some of them likely will not be. Well, no, I think there's I, I think there's a lot of good points made there. I mean, you know, I, I maybe taking the UK as a microcosm and picking on some of the themes that you just described, Patrick. Um, you know, one of the reasons why conceptually hydrogen, um, notably green hydrogen, is so popular amongst political parties in the UK across the political spectrum is because there is a big recognition, not just around decarbonisation, but actually around something that we we don't talk about much, but is important, is which is jobs. You know, the UK North Sea is a massive, um, you know, is a massive source of very high quality engineering, well paid jobs. There is a massive um, manufacturing supply chain actually in the UK that does provide to and cater to the oil and gas industry. Uh, there is some really world class engineering work that's been done to deal with some of the operations within the North Sea, which are extremely difficult. And a lot of that heritage is what has set the UK up well to be a leader in offshore wind. And that's created a number of jobs with that. So I, I think the jobs piece is really important. And, you know, you see this with the focus on who's going to have the first, IT, you know, gigafactory and the UK being very proud of the fact that ITM has the first 
electrolysis gigafactory when the UK hasn't really even got a battery gigafactory. You know, it's it, there is a there is a certain national pride, but there is also steeped in that a jobs piece. And I guess that's something around hydrogen that I do wonder a little bit is the last time we saw a big investment in renewables, in solar and in wind, and to some extent in batteries, what we saw was that a huge amount of innovation in R&D was done in Western or, you know, Western markets. So, you know, whether that's uh, Europe, Germany, um, US, or indeed markets like Japan or Korea, a lot of investment came in, but actually the big beneficiary from the manufacturing side was China um, and the BRICS, who in turn provide a lot of the raw materials and a lot of the minerals that were needed to actually build a lot of these different technologies. What, what I guess I'm wondering is this time around, you know, that there seems to be a sort of a sense that people were fairly burned from that experience. And so are we going to see a much more protectionist approach from countries saying we need much more local content and a much more concerted effort to make it hard for countries like China to have such a dominant position in those markets. And and if we do, for all the reasons we've described, jobs, national security and everything else, crucially, will that actually delay the decline in cost that we saw in previous renewable cycles? And what does that mean for the growth of the sector? I just don't know. But I think that's a question that I would be asking if I was a policymaker at the moment. So, so it's a really interesting one, right? And it, and it's one that you know you can reasonably ask. Um, uh, I think I think what's interesting, and you know, take steel as as an example, right? Steel manufacturing has you know historically been very heavy, heavily politicized. You know, countries like to have their domestic steel production. One of the interesting pieces here is, um, you know, typically we talk about avoiding shipping the bulkiest commodities. Uh, as, a, as a priority in some of these sectors. And coke and coal is a pretty, pretty bulky commodity. So if you avoid that, then the natural place that you produce probably shifts to the next bulkiest commodity location, which is typically iron ore. So now, now you're looking at Australia, which produces vast volumes of, of global uh, supply of iron ore. And you're wondering, well, is this going to be a next kind of major hub of production? And similarly for India, um, you know, it has some domestic pelletization systems, right? So it's pretty, pretty well set up for DRI, uh, uh, hydrogen reduced, uh, iron ore uh, production route for steel. You're looking, you're looking at just a change. The, the entire frame by which we've gotten to where we got today is going to shift a little bit. To your point, there's, I think, reasonable concern around job uh, transitions and also, you know, to your point earlier, uh, folks who work in oil and gas more generally, how they transition into a new career, new job, new role, what what infrastructure is usable, um, you know, what what is our pro- kind of production pathway and how many people need to work on it. And, and that's, a, that's a huge, huge challenge. I think the one thing we again, this is the, this is the piece. Until you do a region by region assessment, you're going to get you're going to just have to kind of throw your hands in the air a little bit and say there's going to be disruption, but like we don't know exactly where or how much, right? To your point on you know maybe like the British government, for example, getting excited about the prospect to almost reshore some of these jobs. I think the other piece of this is that industries that have traditionally been in areas and now have moved away, some of them may come back. It's not unreasonable. Like if you'd said to me a few a few you know years ago that we were going to have a large um, 
steel production units, you know, zero carbon steel production units in Sweden as as a kind of a first in class kind of uh, location, I might have I might have been unsure as to whether that was the first place that I would have picked. Uh, but we're seeing it today. So I, I think to your point, right? There's a there's a degree to which fear of of kind of disruption and job loss and economic disruption is, is very real. On the other side of it is the potential for huge opportunity for countries that have historically been maybe more exploited for their resources rather than um, engaged in for their production potential are going to see uh, an opportunity for the first time in a very long time to to step further up the value scale. Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of road left to run in this. I'm just convinced that it won't be consistent across regions and it won't be consistent across continents. So we're going to see very, very different kind of pathways fall in together. To that point, Chris, you know, when you're engaging people and looking to build a, a build a project with them, I'm sure there are those socioeconomic questions that come to, to bear. And I'm sure you do have the question of, you know, why wouldn't I buy this just directly from an industrial gases company? And, and you know, there is some dynamic here to which building the project is better than uh, just buying it off the shelf. And, and I wonder how you engage that dynamic. Well, and, you know, and I think it's a it's a good question. And I think what's, you know, uh, what we are observing, and I think many others are observing is that um, while a lot of uh, people theoretically like the idea of powering the world with just solar and wind, um, there aren't very many jobs in the world powered just by solar panels and wind turbines. Uh, and the energy sector is a major employer. Um, and actually, there is a lot of skills in the oil and gas sector where there needs to be some form of just transition. And so there is a very live conversation being had in a lot of the world around how do you manage that? How do you do that? And I would suggest as well, you know, we've seen already in certain markets uh, that there's been a pushback around someone putting up a wind farm or a solar panel, solar park, sorry, and then doing a virtual PPA a long distance away and people locally going, why do we have to have this asset here that creates no jobs locally? The power is not being used locally. It's being sold abroad. Uh, and there is pushback to that. And we see that even in the UK, there's been some pushback to that. So uh, I think all of those questions are becoming more and more pertinent and more and more relevant. There is a greater onus on people to show what the local benefit is and that local benefit to be more than just here's a cash handout to your local municipality or your local government. So I think that's important. Something though that I think ties in with all of the things we discussed before, actually, and I think is a good way to kind of wrap up, is uh, our lineup for March. Because for our listeners in March, we've got two quite exciting guests. So the first is on the steel space. And Patrick, I, th- I want to let you do the honours and introduce who our speaker on the steel space is going to be this March. Well, uh, I, I mentioned uh, steel projects in in, um, in Scandinavia. So so we're going to get the, the folks in from... Uh, from who've been working on the, the the hybrid project, so SSAB and um, H2 Green Steel, which is super exciting. So we can ask them all about the merits of you know is uh, production of green steel now a geopolitical advantage of hydrogen in the economy and creating those local sustainable jobs for a decarbonized industrial future. So that would be exciting. And we've also got. Um, the infamous, I should say, famous or infamous, I guess depends who you ask, Michael Liebrich, who very kindly has agreed to come on the show and to talk a little bit about his views on hydrogen. So um, you know, Michael is a well-known commentator on a number of important geopolitical and 
global energy trends, technologies and dynamics. So, you know, he's also um, advisor to various different government bodies and panels and a number of companies, including Equinor, which are involved in several blue and green hydrogen projects. Mm-hmm. So it should be really exciting to get him and the team together the next uh, next month. And I'm sure our listeners will be pretty spoiled with that content. It's gonna be it's gonna be an interesting one, Chris. Sure will be. Well, look, um, signing out here from the Everything About Hydrogen team um, to our listeners, just want to say thank you again for all of your support um, for the last year. As you know, it's been a it's been a busy time during COVID, and uh, we've been trying to keep you all entertained and engaged with our live episodes. But um, hopefully, we'll have some new and exciting talent for the rest of the year. Um, so please do stay tuned. Please do continue to send us your questions and watch the space. We may even be offering a live opportunity to come and see a live recording of the Everything About Hydrogen team at a point later on this year. And that does it for us today at Everything About Hydrogen. Thank you, as always, to Patrick and Chris for their masterful co-hosting abilities and hard work on the show. And also, this time around, for sharing their insights on such complex geopolitical considerations. Lastly, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. It really does help us promote the show and reach a larger audience. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Till then, all the best from the team here at Everything About Hydrogen.